Father, increase our faith, hope, and love. Orient our loves toward your commandments so that we may obtain your promises. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Good evening, friends, brothers, sisters. We're going to be in Nehemiah 9, and we're going to get to the end. We're finishing Nehemiah tonight. Um, One thing to just say, because I was um, gratefully reminded by someone else that not let me say this. I am very aware that my sermons are too long. Just so you know. Nope, they're too long. They're too long. Same content with less jabber would be nice. Or maybe fewer points. I don't know. But uh, I would like to get under the hour mark. That would be a good goal. So thank you. Um, but with that said, um, of course, see, this is where I'm eating up time. This is not planned stuff, so we're already eating up time. <laughs> um, yes. Well, yeah, nothing to do without it. Can't do anything without mercy. But um, tonight, um, this is a part of Nehemiah that's a little fuzzy. We all love the story of building the wall, the leadership, the overcoming of opposition. And then this part just gets messy. There's genealogies. There's um, what is going on here and there. And it's just, it's, it's a mess. And this is the Christian life. Sometimes we accomplish things and then we don't understand how to maintain what God's given us. And Nehemiah is a great example of how we maintain the holiness of the church he's given us. So we are always in the act of building up the church of God. But we're not always good at maintaining the church of God. And the American spirit in recent decades has been all about growing bigger churches, but has been very lazy and frankly, very erroneous in protecting the holiness of the church. Nehemiah gives us a good example of how to do the latter. How do we protect what God has given us? So, by the way, I broke out the cardigan tonight. Um, (laughs) A little bit before fall, I've never worn this in summer, but it's been that kind of summer. Isn't it been weird? Um, so happy fall though, cause that's cause it, like on Tuesday, right? So, is it Tuesday? Is that fall? Yeah. 21st maybe. Okay. It's coming up this week. So happy fall, everyone. Pumpkin lattes, orange trees and, and the cold. So here it comes. <laughs> okay. You probably know where you were the first Sunday when we bought into this idea that if we just shut down our nation for a couple of weeks, COVID would go away. And it was a value. I was willing to give it a try, right? And why not? It's a couple of weeks, a few weeks. But do you, do you remember the first Sunday when this happened? Do you remember where you were? Do you remember, um, I'm assuming I, most of you were huddled around a laptop or a computer as your church was now in a different experience, a different vortex. Um, I remember so vividly how awkward it was when Richard and Sandy were behind me leading worship. We just had like two people in the back booth making sure the sound was working and the video was going through. That was stressful. Um, and then I'm up here giving announcements and I'm welcoming an empty sanctuary and I am talking to a camera and inviting people to, you know, like, let's keep the fellowship going. Like, we're still here for you, even though, you know, we're not gathering in the sanctuary right now. And I just remember... Um, after that Sunday and the next Sundays after that, um, asking this question, what am I doing? I mean, I knew what we were doing, like this, is, this was a necessary step at the moment, but it just kept ringing back to me, what is this? This is hollow. 
Um, and then there was like the times when, oh, wow, we can travel and I can lead my church from anywhere. So we were in Arizona one week. You might remember this. There's a cross full of walls behind me, or a wall full of crosses behind me. And I, I was in Arizona leading you guys through the Psalms of Ascent in Arizona. Um, then there were times that maybe I couldn't be available at that hour so we could record and then just upload it at the church time. And it was just all felt so like, okay. I kept asking myself, what am I doing? Because here was the, here's what I was realizing. The content of our church did not change one wink from being together to being online. The content of worship did not change. I still preached sermons and we still had songs that were sung. That's why I started asking, what am I doing? If, if, if our worship is the exact same when we are in a room and then it's the exact same when we are scattered in individual places, there has to be something broken about that worship. If worship is not different for the people of God gathering together, then we actually don't understand what God is trying to accomplish in his people when we gather on his day to worship him. That was, this was a, it was a very depressing season, um, especially because I did not know how to answer these questions at that time. Um, yeah, if our worship can be replicated without gathering, is it true worship? Now, some of you will be throwing out an objection. Yes, it is. I, I worship God every day by myself. You do. But we actually call that devotion. It's private devotion to God, and that's very important. But that is not corporate formation underneath the headship of Christ when we come together as his bride. There's a big difference and our worship here should not be exactly like you would do it by yourself at home. The gathering of the people of God creates a moment when the Lord can then bring us to his throne in a way he doesn't do when we are alone. And therefore, I ask that question, what are we doing? And, well, we've been over the last was that was 2020? Yeah. March 22nd, 2020. So we're what? Two years away from that? A little more than two years away from that. And, um, I love what God's doing. Some of this is going to show up in Nehemiah, which is why I'm starting the way we are. I want you to look at Nehemiah seven verse four before we get to chapter nine. It's this little part we didn't make a big deal of at the time because it wasn't a big deal at the time. <laughs> but now we need to look at Nehemiah seven four and it says, The city was wide, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been built. Nehemiah, like me, realized that the church needs to reform its worship. Nehemiah recognized, okay, we got the wall up, but no one's in the city of God. It would be like us, but no one's in the church of God. Can we actually keep calling this worship if we can keep on doing this at a distance? Now, hello, those that are online. I understand your circumstances are the way they are, and you don't prefer that. I know some of them that watch. They're like, I would rather be there, but I can't for these reasons. Obviously, that's a different situation. Um, so what we need to understand, and I think we will see, is that private is, worship is not a private expression. 
We have that, and that's good. It's called relating with Christ. It's, it's talking to Christ. We have private expression, but corporate worship is not private expression. It's corporate formation. We come together so that Christ can hold us in his hands and shape us into his gospel so that we can be carriers of his story into the world. We come and gather so that we leave differently than we came. We should never come expecting things to go the way I like it because the way you like it is not fully mature in Christ. Christ is leading us from point A to point B and worship is the journey. He takes us somewhere. Worship is an act of God. This is why we start Sunday nights with, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let us stand for it is time for the Lord to act. We've entered into a new realm. We are acting everywhere in the world, right? You've got jobs to do. We've got things to do. We've got things to accomplish. But when we come in here, it's not time for us to act. It's not time for us to tell God how how greatly we love him. Mean, we do tell him how greatly we love him. But that's not all we do is just, just pour out our feelings to him. It's time for him to act, and we stand at attention, ready for him to work and to move. This is what forms us and changes us, and this is what corporate worship should look like. Something that can't be done just alone in front of a computer screen. Nehemiah recognizes Jerusalem's empty. Something has to happen. So what do they do? In chapter 8, we saw this last week. They begin to read the law. And they begin to find out that as they're reading the law to the people, they begin to weep. They're moved. Then they realize, wait a minute, in the law, it tells us to have these corporate gatherings on certain days of the year and celebrate the story of God's salvation. So they celebrate the Feast of Booths. We looked at all this last week. Um, There's been this movement, okay? In Ezra... Uh, we read that Israel's allowed to leave their Babylonian captivity. They're allowed to come back home. And so uh, Zerubbabel leads them to building the temple. Ezra chapters 1 through 6. Remember Gregory Clarkson taught those passages in a thrilling way. Then in Ezra 7 through 10, Ezra comes and he starts to teach the people the law. They confess their sins for intermingling with the pagan nations around them. And then in Nehemiah chapter 1 through 7, Nehemiah feels this call to come and build the city walls. And so he comes and he restores Jerusalem. Then last week in chapter 8, they reorient their lives around God's word and around the, the, the public gatherings of having feasts to celebrate God's story. And then in chapter 9, which we'll look at tonight, or a little, well, barely. <laughs> Chapter 9, uh, we're going to see that they confess their sins and recite God's story together. They confess their sins. They've been hearing the reading of the law. They've been celebrating God's festivals together, and now they are weeping in the dust because they understand that they have not lived up to what God has asked his people to do. And now they want to populate Jerusalem. They want to be where he is. Um, then in chapter 10, what we'll see is um, after they've confessed their sins and they've recited the story of God, chapter 9 is like the most great, concise um, narration of the Old Testament story in the Bible. It's just so great and concise. It tells the whole story. Then in chapter 10, the people decide to create, uh, to sign a new covenant to God. They're going to recommit themselves to the covenant that they broke. Then in chapter 11, we have a bunch of names and leaders. And then in chapter 12, we see the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem. 
So there's this progression. They're coming back. They're building things. Then they recognize they haven't been right. They confess their sins. They they decide to orient themselves around God's law. And then they create a renewal of the covenant. And then they dedicate the walls of Jerusalem. The whole pattern is showing they're beginning to understand that their city is not one for power. It's not one for politics. It's one for the worship of God. It's a holy place. So they dedicate the walls. And then in chapter 13, it kind of gets ugly, and Nehemiah comes in and fixes things. It's entertaining, and it's also sad. So we'll get to that. All right. So, brothers and sisters, chapter 9, this is what they do. 9 verse 1. On the 24th day of that seventh month, so it's just a few days after the Feast of Booths, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Now, to put earth on your head means it's basically getting as low as you can go. I am one with the dust. Even my head, which is the highest part of me, is part of the dust. I am humiliated before God. And verse 2, Israelites prepared themselves, uh, separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in the place to read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And on the stairs, the Levites stood, and it names the Levites. And then the Levites, in verse 5, it names more Levites, said, Stand and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Stand up. Stand. Did anybody know this song? And bless the Lord your God. Oh, I'll have to teach you sometime. Um, yeah, based on that verse. So here's what happens. They're down on their faces confessing. We want to live the kingdom way. But then the Levites come in and they say, this is good. It's good to be humble before God and to confess our sins. But now it's time to stand up because he is worthy of praise, because look, he has not cast us off forever. The covenant is not broken. He's brought us back. He will rebuild us. So the Levites are coming to tell them, stand up. And oh, Christian, we we confess our sins every week, but what do we do after that? We stand up. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world, saved sinners of whom I'm chief. And so what do we do after that? We stand yeah, why, do, why are we doing, like, why do we stand here and then stand there? We stand because the Bible tells us to stand after confession. Because God doesn't leave us in our sins. He says, you, O sinner, have received mercy. Stand up. You are now in a new position in me. You don't have to grovel and live in depression or despair. You have been graced with my spirit. So stand up and bless the Lord your God. So we, what do we do? We recite a psalm. We recite a psalm. And by the way, we do it in a call and response because it was in Ezra chapter three. It says that after they had built the altar that they, um, the people, um, gave a, they, um, here it is. It's Ezra three eleven. They sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Responsively means the priest led one part and then they sang the other part back. It's a shame that we've lost how to sing all the psalms. Um, I'm loving and finding a couple psalms here and there that are put to music we can actually sing. But saying them back is, is the next best. 
And look what they do. It says that they, they, they sing responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord and saying, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And so we stand and we sing responsively the Psalms because this is, the Psalms are the bride's response to God. God speaks to us and the Psalms are his people speaking back to him. This is part of worship, is that God calls us. God works among us. We receive what he's doing. We didn't try to connive him, twist his arm, earn it. We recognize it's a gift that he's moving in our midst, and then we receive it and respond. We give it back to him. That's that's part of the change we've done in worship. Now, you and I, we get to do that, but you can't do that by yourself. There's no call and response by yourself. You respond to God in your prayers, but as a, we're not together as a bride responding to the king who speaks to us. And we get to do that using our voices together. Standing, sitting together, all of these things are part of, we see these patterns. Um, okay, then in verse 6, Nehemiah 9 verse 6. If you would like to see the Old Testament consolidated, read that when you get home. But they're basically confessing God's goodness and their failures. So that leads them to say, let's make a covenant. So in chapter 10, it says, On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor and all these people. So they decide to renew the covenant with God. So they put all these names on it. It's like the uh, the Declaration of Independence. You got all the names right at the bottom. John Hancock's is the biggest. Um, That's what we have. We have. We have a list of their signatures. And then in chapter 10, verse 28 we see detailed the three areas of the covenant that they are renewing themselves in. First, they are renewing fellowship. They're renewing fellowship. They have this habit of wanting to marry wives from the nations around them. Why? Are they more beautiful than the wives of Israel? No. Because here's the thing. Oh, we can, we can create security for ourselves and wealth for ourselves. We marry other nations and we're all kind of connecting this happy family and woo, we got more power. And God always warned them. Look at Solomon. They actually say that in their story of what God's done. Look at Solomon. It didn't go well. We can't trust in the marriage of other people for God giving us power and wealth. We must trust in him to give us security. So they commit themselves to not intermarrying because the intermarriages always lead Israel to worship the gods of the other nations because that's actually part of the deal. If we're all one now, then we all have to share each other's gods. And so they devote themselves to their own fellowship. Christian, we need to devote ourselves to fellowship. You will end up worshiping the gods of the world around you if you are mingling with those gods. But that's where fellowship is so important because it keeps us encouraged in looking at Christ. So 10 verse 30 says this. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. That's where they are renewing the covenant. We will do this now. We will stay married within Israel. And again, by the way, guys, but no, this is not a racist thing. It is purely a way of keeping the covenant with God and not worshiping other gods. Um, you see, Ruth, the Moabitess, she is brought into Israel because she wants to worship Yahweh. So it's purely a, a religious motivation. Um, second, renewal of the covenant comes in verse 31. 10 verse 31. If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, 
We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. What are they saying? God told them every seventh day to rest. Whoa. So you have to stop working your land every seventh day. Do no work. It means you're trusting God. I will stop my work and give it unto you as an offering. And I will trust that you will keep it going. That's what they're devoting themselves to. This is why the Sabbath was hard for them to keep. Because they're not trusting God in their rest. And the reason also to rest on the seventh day was so that they could worship. There's no excuse to not worship God if you don't have to pull your donkeys into the fields, right? And so they have to trust God to provide for them. Notice that on the seventh year, too, they were supposed to do nothing with their crops every seven years. That's faith. You have to trust that he's going to provide an extra year for you. And Israel never did that. Um, Jeremiah, no, the end of Chronicles says that the exile was 70 years to account for every seventh year that they didn't give the land rest. They didn't trust God. But now they're saying, we will trust you to provide for us. So they're committing themselves to fellowship, to rest and worship. And then third, they're committing themselves to tithing. This is in verse 32. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God, for the showbread, the regular grain offerings, the regular burnt offerings, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of God. And then they go on saying, we'll also support the Levites and the priests because they were supported by the tithes of Israel. The entire worship of the temple was supported by the tithes of Israel. It's not cheap to keep all of that stuff going, right? They had to keep the flame going year round and they're doing two sacrifices every day on behalf of the nation. All of this was provided by the nation. So they're committing themselves to tithe, which they had not always done in their history, to tithe in order to support the temple and the priests. So fellowship, rest and worship, and tithing. These were the three renewals of the covenant that they committed themselves to. Then they signed the covenant so that everyone knows if they see Billy not tithing or Joe not, sorry, Joe, I didn't mean the word, the name that was in here, um, Joseph um, not um, resting on the Sabbath and worshiping, or if they see um, someone else <laughs> um, not fellowshipping with the people of God, they could say, but you signed your name. You said you would. So this creates accountability in the covenant. That's what they're setting up. They want to make sure never again do we betray our God. So, um, what are they doing here? What are they doing? I have a hunch that they're anticipating the new covenant of God. The new covenant. Now, the old covenant was Moses, who... At Sinai, received the law from God, gave it to Israel, and then they, they killed animals, and they put the blood on the altar, and then they put the blood on the people. And the people said, we will do all that the Lord our God says. So they put the blood on them to mark them so that they are in the covenant through the blood. Okay? That was the old covenant. Now, they they had messed that up terribly. They didn't keep their end of that. They're coming back, and they're like, hey, we want to renew this old covenant, but Also, they kind of suspect that God is going to do a new thing. So they're looking forward to this new covenant that Jeremiah promised would come. 
Jeremiah 31, verse 31, an enormously important passage of the Bible. You should be circling, squaring, highlighting, fireworking that section of Scripture. I will read it to you. You can turn there or you can listen carefully. It's Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. Not like the old covenant. It's going to be a new one. Because they broke that covenant, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. I took care of them. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. A new wedding, a new marriage, a new oneness. They will be together. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Do you think that they're anticipating that this might be coming soon? They're back in the land. It seems that God is showing favor again. They're anticipating. They're getting themselves ready by renewing the covenant that they have. Brothers and sisters, we are in that new covenant. When did that happen? Well, when Jesus broke bread on the night of his betrayal and gave to them the cup of the vine. This is what it says in Luke 22, verse 19. Luke 22, verse 19. Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Very intentionally highlighting what Jeremiah foresaw is happening with this cup. But now what did he identify the cup as? His blood. Remember, with Moses, God shed, Moses had shed the blood of animals, put it on the altar, and then put it on the people. Christ on the cross sheds his blood. He's the animal that's slain and his blood falls to the earth. It cleanses the altar of the earth. And then he sprinkles his blood on us through the communion cup. When we drink of the cup, we are taking his blood of the new covenant upon ourselves as Israel did at the old covenant. And what that means is we are identifying ourselves with this new covenant. Or in other words, we are putting our names in the book of life as these signed their covenant renewal. I point this out because we take communion weekly here, but we need to also take it seriously. 
that when I come forward and I receive the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, I am renewing the covenant he has made with us. I am declaring I am in him and he is in me. And I'm also declaring I am a member of his body because his body is now in me. And I'm declaring if I break covenant, brothers and sisters who witness my eating and drinking, you have every right to call me to correction. Calvary Chapel does not do church membership and that can be abused. There's also pros to it, but there's also cons to it. Um, we haven't done church membership because the way I see your membership in the body of Christ is when you receive the bread and the cup. You are telling me I am in Christ and you have full authority to correct me when I am not keeping the new covenant. It's pretty big stuff. But that every Sunday we gather, Christ is hosting us at his table to renew with him the covenant he's made with us. Because, man, we blow it all week. But every week we get to come and receive the bread and the cup, and we're renewing the covenant again. We're remarked with him. And here's what he means when he says, do this in remembrance of me. It's, um, in remembrance of me is one way to translate it. The other way to translate it is do this as my memorial. You actually see that footnoted in 1 Corinthians 11 where the same phrase is used as my memorial. The difference is when we hear, do this in remembrance of me, we're, we're holding the cup and the, and the bread and we're thinking, I remember you, Jesus. Good. That's a good start. But that's not what he's actually asking for. What he's saying is that when we take the bread and the cup, this is Christ's memorial in us. So that when God looks upon us, he is the one who's remembering that we are in Christ. That's what that means. It's not we who remember, it's God who remembers. Now, you'll understand this once I point out two examples to you. Um, The rainbow at the end of the flood. Here's how the rainbow was described. In Genesis 9.16, when the bow is in the clouds... God says, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. Who, what, who is the bow reminding? It's not reminding us, it's reminding God about his promises. When we take communion as a memorial, we're reminding God of his promises, of his new covenant. Um, also, in Numbers chapter 10, maybe I'm over making this point, but... Um, In Numbers chapter 10, he talks about the trumpets being blown at every festival and gathering. And when the trumpet's blown, God tells them that those trumpets are a reminder of you before your God. I hear those trumpets and I remember my people. That is what we do with the bread and the cup. And here's what's also cool. If Christ is our sacrifice for the new covenant, um, we receive the bread separate and we receive the cup separate right you have both of them they're not together because what happens when you separate flesh and blood well if you don't know and i'll tell you when you bleed out you die (laughs) flesh without blood is death we receive our sacrificed lord but when we put it inside of us they come back together flesh and blood are reunited And so every communion is a reenactment of the death and resurrection of Christ. He comes, uh, the symbol of his life, his resurrection is inside of us when we receive. That's a a worthy celebration. 
And so we don't come crawling to communion. We come celebrant because we know we've stood forgiven. We are coming to receive our risen Christ. Now, I want to be super clear um, because usually um, um, we're not always very good about talking about communion. We just kind of do it, you know. And in the churches I grew up, we did it once a month. And it was just kind of like a personal private devotion thing. Honestly, we were never told what this is doing to a church. It was just kind of like your Jesus moment, right? It's just like the bread and the cup. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm a wretched sinner. It's like your monthly confession. And um, I'm so sorry. I don't, I'm not trying to take communion lightly when I say this. This was just my experience growing up. I didn't take it seriously. It was just like one of those, we sing and then we do this too. Um, there's something very important that's happening. And so uh, I want to be very clear when I say that in bringing communion to importance, I am not saying that we actually believe that this bread is the body of Christ. Okay, this is not his body. Right now, this is wheat, sourdough starter, salt, and water. That's what this is right now. I made it in my kitchen. All right, there is nothing sacred about... I mean, especially since I made it. There's nothing sacred about this bread. You'll see my kids drinking the rest of the communion juice, right? Because it's better than throwing it away. There's nothing like, oh, they shouldn't do that. It's disrespectful. No, this is juice. This is juice and this is bread. Okay, we're not Catholic in the sense of, um, we don't believe that this literally becomes like, right? I don't have this hocus, actually hocus pocus. I'm sorry, this is, hocus pocus comes from the phrase hocus corpus Christi. The Latin, this is the by Christ, but the peasants misheard it for hocus pocus. And that's where our phrase comes from. Um, so I say that to say, we don't believe that I magically changed this. Um, we believe that this is bread, this is juice. But when we eat it, Christ said, take and eat. Then he said, this is my body, this is my blood. So that when I ingest it, that's when it becomes, in God's eyes, the body and blood of Christ. Does that make sense? Especially because when it goes into me, they're reunited and reinfused. Okay, just in case anyone wanted to know, because some people have said, like, it feels a little Catholic when we come up to receive the bread and the cup. And yeah, but, brothers and sisters, if this is covenant renewal, this is an altar call. This is us recommitting ourselves to Christ, and I would prefer we do an action to do so. You might remember we used to receive communion. It was at various tables around the church. Um, the worship team would sing, and you would kind of go get it at your own time. It was a very private thing. Um, we've combined that now with there's a corporate motion. It comes from one bread and one place, um, and then we go and we receive it somewhat together, right? Kind of on our own, on our own within a moment. And um, that was one of the changes that I felt was very important. That we understand that we're doing something, and this is doing something to us when we come to receive communion. Um, communion is an act of covenant renewal. God remembers us in Christ. Glorious. So you leave celebrant. You leave thankful. We leave united with Christ, which is, by the way, what we call it communion. It's union, us among ourselves, and us in Christ, and Christ in us. That's a beautiful a practice that Christ has given us. And by the way, this is the only way Christ commanded us to worship. He told us to do this. Yeah. I'm so thankful that Pastor Mike instituted doing this every week because that's not normal in Protestant churches. And um, had I done it, people probably would have rebelled against me. So I'm glad that I could just say, Pastor Mike did it. <laughs> so that's why we do it. <laughs> um, 
Okay. I don't know where I'm at time. Yeah, I've probably already done blown past my target. Um, but we are landing this now. So this is what I think that we need to realize is that as the Jews were here renewing the covenant, we renew the covenant every week. And that means then we go into the week keeping the covenant. That's the goal. We're renewed and we want to keep the covenant. So we are, in other words, not going to intermingle with other gods. We remain in fellowship throughout the week. So we keep praying about how we're going to remain in fellowship throughout the week. Um, we, we don't work ourselves to death and think that it's all of our work that makes everything happen. No, communion reminds us and gathering together reminds us that it's God who works in our midst. So we go through the week resting and trusting that God will complete what he's begun. We don't have to stress out and lose sleep over things. Um, and then we go out trusting um, that we can tithe and God will provide. We can tithe and God will provide. But here's the truth. God doesn't provide for his churches without his people's tithes. I mean, yes, every now and then you get the stories, these radical donations, but that lasts for so long, right? Um, churches need tithes. And this is a hot button issue. So I will kind of, this will be one of our applications. Um, if you don't tithe, you should tithe. This is not so that I get rich. Calvary Chapel has set the salary that I make. That's set, okay? The tithes of the church does not fluctuate that. So it's not like, give the church money so that I can buy a car. That's not it at all. Um, the idea is that we want to be a giving church, and we want to have an abundance to give to others. You guys know that I'm really a minimalist at heart, and I'm not really into building um, these really big state-of-the-art amphitheaters. I never plan to do that, okay? We're not going to save money so we can build a state-of-the-art amphitheater. Um, our auditorium is what I mean. Um, no, we, our worship will, be, will beautify the place we meet. Um, I would love to see our church reach every uh, obligation it has to our missionaries that we support and to well, our pastor <laughs> we support. I am bivocational, so that helps, right? It takes a lot of burden off the church. Um, uh, but then that we would have an abundance to just say, we will help you with this because this is why the church receives tithes. Mm -hmm. Now, people have decided that they will do this at their discretion. I, yeah, the money is God's. I will decide how I give it to God. But actually he is asked in the early church practice that the tithes of the people God go to the church as they went to the temple. And that it's at the church's discretion how to distribute it. Now, I'm with you if you've lost faith in that, because I see some of the churches and the way they spent money, and I think, I ain't tithing there, mm -hmm. because I don't want, I don't want my money to go to, oh, our JBL speakers weren't good enough, so now we've got Yamaha speakers, I don't even know what the better ones are, uh, uh, Bose, now we got Bose speakers, like, I'm sorry, like, I don't want my money to go there, but yes, um, God wants the church to be the one that gives, because then the church receives the glory of Christ when people see who is giving their money to them. That community loves each other so much they're without needs so that they can meet our needs. That's what we should see. So, um, brothers and sisters, when we receive communion, we also receive correction. So we need to ask ourselves, are we trusting God with our money? Are we trusting him in our work so that we can worship him? And are we trusting him in our fellowship or do we need other people to make us happy? Chapter 13 is where Nehemiah has to enforce this. They said, you can keep us accountable, so he keeps them accountable. So what does he do? In chapter 13, it shows these three points are all broken. 
They start intermarrying with other people. They stop keeping the Sabbath so that now the worship day has become a marketing day. By the way, the church does that. Sundays are marketing days for a lot of churches. We don't market Jesus. He's not a product. He's not a quick fix to your problems. He is our Lord. He's our King. And we worship him. We come to him with reverence and adoration. Um, then they're also um, not supporting, they're not supporting the priests in the temple. So the temple's empty. And you know what they did? The high priest, it says in verse four, the high priest Eliashib appointed, they have these chambers in the temple where they're supposed to stock the things that they need. And they gave one of these chambers to guess who? Tobiah. Remember Sambalot and Tobiah? Yeah, if a fox crawls on the wall, it will break down. One of these chambers was given to Tobiah as a little, like, free of rent apartment. And Nehemiah sees this. And he sees that the priests are therefore not supported and that the temple's neglected. Worship is not ongoing. And so Nehemiah flips his lid, right? And he, he throws Tobiah out. You've let the enemy into the temple? And then he throws Tobiah's furniture out. I just love the picture. And Tobiah just watching. It's like that you get dumped by a really angry girlfriend. And you're just, the guy's just watching like everything getting thrown out of the apartment. Um, Nehemiah is just making a scene. And he should. This should be a scene. The people should remember that this is abominable. Um, when he notices that they are marrying. If you look at verse 23. This is 13 verse 23. When he notices their intermarriage. It says, in those days, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. They could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. That's a problem if we don't know how to speak the language of worship. That is a major problem. And so he confronted them in verse 25 and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. This could also be a comical scene. Nehemiah is routing everyone in the temple and he's like whipping them and beating them and yanking out hair and it's just chaos. Uh, Christ, of course, does do this in a much gentler way. Um, not ripping out hair, but he does cleanse the temple like Nehemiah. But here's what you need to see. Nehemiah was not flying off the handle and just ripping out beards and hair. This was likely a public ceremony where these people who had intermarried others were then put in front of the people Look, we must keep each other accountable. And then Nehemiah, in a ritualistic sense, goes through and plucks out hair of each one. It's a, it's a ritual. Um, and that would be, well, I don't want that to happen to me. So, yeah. That's, that's what we see happening. So, brothers and sisters, we have to throw Tobiah out of the church. All right? Churches are not coffee shops. They're not concert halls. They're not stadiums. And just by creating an atmosphere that's like that, you're sending a message to the worshipers of what this is. Church is unlike anything else. It's why it's called holy. It's why the walls were dedicated. Christian worship is unique. And it should be unique. We must close the gates to marketing. When they want to bring the sales pitches to the church, when the church wants desperately to boast about how much good we're doing in the community, when the church wants to rile up support so that it can build a new, sometimes building things is important in some contexts, but that's not even what I'm saying. When the church wants to take on a brand and get everyone to, bless you, join their church as if you're joining a brand, 
This should not happen. Because what the world sees is, oh, it's a social club, like everything else that's out there. What makes the brand of a church different than the brand of your favorite franchise in Major League Baseball? There's a lot of similarities. If your worship is not uniquely Christian, people get together and they get excited. They wear all the same colors and they speak the same language and they like the same things and they eat this. Uh, you can go down. I'm not, I shouldn't riff. This is why I take too long. Um, so we throw Tobiah out. We close the gates to marketing. This is not a marketing moment. I'm not trying to sell you something. I'm Here's Christ. Have them or don't. Um, and then third, we commit to the fellowship among God's people. So we need each other. And I say all this in conclusion. Um, yes, we've made changes to our worship. And I'm more than happy to talk about any of that. Because every single part of our one and a half to two hour service is very intentional. Every single line has been thought out. Um, um, because I believe that the future of Christianity looks ancient. We've had decades where the church is trying to modernize itself and look like other things. Worship can look like a concert. Um, the style can feel like a cafe, like a cafe just be casual. Um, there's just a lot of things we've done to try to be friendly. And I'm all for bringing people into the church, but we have to do it under Christ's terms. So um, I believe that the future of Christianity looks more ancient than it has. And that means we, we are just going back to what our forefathers passed down and we foolishly said, we don't need that. Mm-hmm. Well, who are we to say what has worked for 2,000 years and what hasn't? The end result is that we must trust God more than ourselves. So come, brothers and sisters, after we pray for one another and for our community, let us come and receive Christ's gift to us and declare publicly, I trust Christ more than I trust the world's means or my means. And this builds his life in us. And may he be glorified in you. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen.